From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. While you are probably aware of the important childhood vaccines to prevent disease, you may not realize that adults need vaccinations to stay healthy, just like kids do. On today's program, we'll discuss the recommended vaccines for adults and get an infectious disease update from a Mayo Clinic expert. The vaccine we had, the efficacy was about, you know, I say 60%, which is not great, but uh, certainly better than nothing. The new vaccine has much better efficacy. We're looking in the 90s. Also on the program, using telemedicine in the emergency room. And the USDA's Food Keeper app a tool to help consumers keep their foods safe. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, last fall, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC, they got a lot of committees there. Well, they released new vaccine recommendations for adults. Among the recommendations were a booster shot for mumps and the new and improved shingles vaccine for those over the age of 50. Here to discuss vaccine recommendations is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me back. Good, Dr. Tosh. Great to have you on the program. So I got to get a mumps vaccine? So it's recommended now that make sure that everybody is mumps immune, right? So if people have not gotten their full vaccine regimen when they were kids or were not sure if, if they got it when they were earlier, um, to make sure that really you're assessing to make sure everybody has been uh, vaccinated or is immune. So if you had the vaccine as a kid or if you had mumps, you don't need to get it? That's pretty much it. But okay. uh, the idea is to make sure that uh, we are not missing people. So why are we hearing about all these mumps all of a sudden? You haven't heard about mumps for decades. And all of a sudden, the hockey team, though everybody in the hockey team gets mumps, or the cheerleaders who went to Dallas, or what's going on? Yeah, so mumps uh, was a disease, a vaccine-preventable disease, that we really saw a big dip uh, after the vaccine was, was available. And you know, this is a disease that was the number one cause of central neural hearing loss in children, before really? the vaccine. Oh, yeah. It's a major, major cause of, of mor- morbidity. Um, so you can lose your hearing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A- absolutely. And uh, the vaccine, you know, the full regimen, is about 88% uh, effective in preventing mumps. Now, if you compare it to the other parts of MMR, so measles, mumps, and rubella, for the measles part of the rubella, we're looking in the 90s in terms of efficacy. But for mumps, it's about 88%, which is... Still pretty good, but not uh, as high as I think we, we would all like. So that really depends on population immunity, meaning that if you have over 90% of your population with full vaccination, then something like somebody coming in with mumps from overseas, that's not going to spread through a community. What did you call it? I know it as herd immunity, but what did you say? That's a nicer phrase. Oh, I would have used herd, herd immunity. Uh, <laughs> uh, population immunity? Population immunity. Yeah. Hey, okay. I'm a farm kid. I got that's you. What I know. That's fine with me, too. <laughs> And so now we have entire generations of kids, a generation of kids that uh, where there's, you know, their parents are, are questioning whether they should vaccinate their children. And so we've had decrease in vaccination overall. And so because the mumps uh, efficacy is you know, not in the high 90s, we will see when we start to see dips in vaccine uptake, uh, increases in mumps outbreaks, which is exactly what we're seeing now. 
All right, what else is new on the uh, list from the CDC about adult immunizations? I think the big thing is the new vaccine to prevent shingles. And so shingles, uh, for those who may not know, is a reactivation of the chickenpox virus, of varicella uh, zoster, um, that uh, once you have chickenpox, it gets into your nerve cells. And then later on, many, usually many decades after you're infected, that virus reactivates from the nerves and causes really painful blisters. And um, you know, it can be really debilitating, but more so is called post-herpetic neuralgia, that after you get shingles, that pain can last for years and be really debilitating. And so, yes, we've had vac- a vaccine that can reduce uh, shingles, but more so what we're trying to reduce is post-herpetic neuralgia. The vaccine we had was a live vaccine, and you know, the efficacy was about, you know, I say, 60% in the best population, and those between, I think, age 60 and 69, and about 51% overall which is not great, but uh, certainly better than nothing. The new vaccine has much better efficacy. We're looking in the 90s uh, and across age ranges, really. Yeah, it's better if it's given a little earlier, but it's really across age ranges um, into the 70s and potentially even the 80s for people who get it in preventing shingles, but also post-herpetic neuralgia. Are shingles like chicken pox in that once you've had shingles, you don't get them again? There's different aspects of the immune system. The cellular immunity is really important for uh, preventing reactivation of varicella zoster virus. And so if you've had shingles, that means that your immune system, your cellular immunity has decreased with age. um, And so that you, you know, to the point where this virus that was being kept in check can come out. And so it is recommended that even if people have had shingles, that they get the vaccine. And, and this is not an uncommon disease. There are about a million cases a year of, of herpes zoster. If you are over the age of 85, there's a 50% chance you're going to get herpes zoster. Right. So, I this, mean, is, this is a huge deal to get this vaccine, right? New Shingrix. That's, that's the one. Um, and it's, uh, I say it's not a live vaccine, meaning that people who, are, uh, who have poor immune systems can get the vaccine. But it seems to be, you know, first of all, really well tolerated, but also really great efficacy. So much so that the CDC has recommended this one over the previous Zostavax. And is it covered by insurance? So that's uh, being worked on, oh. right? So uh, Medicare is going through the process, and many health insurances have sort of embraced this, and we'll be doing that. Yeah, now hopefully Medicare will cover it. I think it's 280 bucks for uh, the, the two doses. Uh, but the other question is, when is it available? Is it out there now? So it's out there now. It is. And um, you know, I gave it a few months, uh, waited until about January, February before I started recommending getting it just to make sure that people's insurance companies had a chance to catch up to what the, the recommendations are. Um, but, yeah, I've been I've been giving it to people. What is the vaccine schedule for adults? So we've got Shingrix in there. We've got Zoster covered. What what else do we got to cover? So uh, a a few things. One other vaccine-preventable disease uh, about uh, pertussis. Every adult should have a single uh, adult booster of Tdap, which includes the acellular pertussis, but also uh, pneumovax. So that's... Uh, or uh, vaccination pneumococcal. against pneumococcal. Yep. Uh, yep. Pneumovax is a, is a brand name. Um, <clears throat> but uh, there's a new uh, pneumococcal vaccine, and the, the previous ones were uh, targeting sort of the sugar on the outside of the bacteria. 
Uh, this one is taking those sugars and then combining it with a diphtheria toxoid so that the immune system has a much uh, more vigorous response to those antigens and therefore getting really be- more deep uh, immunological response and hopefully, if you say, better response. All right, so you've got the Tdap, which is the, the tetanus, the diphtheria, and pertussis, and then the pneumococcal, and that takes two shots, right, a year apart? So um, it, there, there's different recommendations based on uh, whether it's being done at, at, at a certain age or if you're being done because you're immunocompromised in some way. Um, and uh, you know, it's best to go to your, your doctor to find out exactly which is best for you, but do know that there's a new vaccine um, <clears throat> that has better uh, – efficacy, and spectra certainly work better um, in older adults and immunocompromised people to prevent uh, infection with, uh, with pneumococcus. All right. We've been discussing recommended vaccinations with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Pratish Tosh. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll look at the flu season and discuss the flu vaccine. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. We are talking with an infectious disease specialist at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Pratish Tosh. We've talked about all the vaccinations. You need to get it as an adult to protect yourself. And now, let's hit the flu. Yeah, we're winding down as we go through the flu season. And uh, I know they always say, oh, you can still get it in through March and into April. But how was this year's flu vaccine. Yeah, summarize that season for us. Yeah, so uh, we'll talk about this two different ways. One okay. is about the season and one is about the vaccine. Okay. So this is, you know, the worst flu season we've seen for a decade in, in terms of many things, including um, hospitalizations, the number of people who've gotten sick, um, including, and then also early data about actual deaths, death in children, death in adults related to this flu season. And, um, you know, a few reasons about why this flu season has been worse than others. One is, you know, it's about the virus itself. Um, when we have, so every influenza season, it's, it's between one of the two different uh, influenza A viruses, big group of, of H1N1 and then H3N2. It turns out, though, that these epidemics that happen each year that are the ones that are caused by H3N2 viruses tend to be more aggressive. And this last year, uh, this last season was an H3N2 virus, and it, sure enough, it, it turned to be uh, more aggressive than even previous H3N2 uh, seasons. There's a lot of talk whether or not this was uh, related to vaccine, if you call it vaccine failure. Um, and there's different aspects of this. Uh, it looks like we had a good match. Actually, the the vaccine uh, antigen is, was very similar to what was the circulating strain of H3N2. And it's guesswork, right? I mean, you, you, you take the best guess about what virus is going to be. Did you see the fire shoot out of his eyes when you said that? No, guesswork? It, it is. Isn't it guesswork? Uh, it's an informed guess. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, it's, right. I wouldn't call it a guess. You can use it's that adjective informed. if you want. Yeah, it's I mean, guesswork. Yeah. If you ask me, like, which pocket my phone is in, like, based on my experience, it's in my right pocket. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so there's a little bit of uh, nuanced subjectivity in knowing what uh, strains have been circulating in, sure. you know, throughout the year in different parts of the world to say this is what's likely to be coming up next year. You can't vaccinate against every strain is what I'm saying. You have to pick the ones that you think are most likely to cause the influenza this year. That's right. And uh, the WHO and CDC 90% of the time, maybe that's an overshoot, 80, 90% of the time are absolutely right on that the, the strains they pick 
are the ones that are going to be circulating. That would be an educated guess. That's an educated guess. (laughs) Uh, This year, not quite that good. No, it was really good. They were right on. They picked the antigen exactly right. So the issue is actually about the vaccines themselves. That it turns out that you know the influenza vaccine is not just across the board not as good as I think we, anybody would like. And we're talking about fifty-year-old technology is what we're using. Yeah, you were saying you know for shingles you've got an eighty to ninety percent vaccine success rate. Right. Not so much with flu. That's right. And I think previously we had thought it was seventy to ninety percent efficacy, but that's relying on some other types of you know, studies to to look at whether or not somebody got infected. Now that we actually have, you, know, you can stick swab in somebody's nose and do a PCR and find out do they have influenza or not. So when you look at that as the endpoint, the vaccine efficacy is you know, fifty to sixty percent, and it's even lower. That part is is when you look at just the H three and two, it's probably about thirty percent. And this year. In the U.S., uh, it looks about 25% efficacy. So how do you make a better working flu vaccine? And that's exactly it. Right. Well, I ask the questions, and then you give the answer. <laughs> Not a problem. Well, I, thanks for that setup, Tracy. Yeah, you're exactly right again, Tracy. So, um, <laughs> so the important thing to know is that the vaccine uh, does work, and I want people to use it. I got, I got my vaccine this year. I'll get it next year. My entire family gets it. And it's very good at preventing death, right? If you look at all the pediatric deaths that happened this season, the majority are were in unvaccinated children. I think I had heard that 85% of the children that died had not been vaccinated. Right. And there are studies that look at the mortality associated with influenza infection. And in adults, often you're looking at death from underlying medical comorbidities. So if somebody has heart disease or lung disease, it's a death that is caused by the underlying disease that sort of they got tipped over because of influenza infection. So, you know, the vaccine can prevent death from these uh, other causes very well. Uh, so I still want people to get the, vac- the current vaccine. But there's a longer discussion about what do we have to do to get a better vaccine. And influenza is tricky. It, the outside parts that we, get, uh, that we get the antibodies to, the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, so H and N, uh, you know, those are variable. They change every year. So most of the antibodies that your body will generate to natural infection is against these variable regions. And so it's if those are things that are changing, you know, we have to keep changing the vaccine every year. So the viruses are pretty smart. They can adapt. They can. Uh, but there are conserved areas within the virus, between viruses, um, that if we were to get an antibody that could target those conserved regions – then we may be able to develop what's called a universal vaccine, right? That way we don't have to change it every year. Um, unfortunately, you know, those uh, conserved regions are also uh, have the sort of le- the, the least antigenic potential, meaning that if, when you get infected, your antibodies are not going towards those conserved regions. Um, so it's tough to know, well, what, what are those conserved regions we need to target? And even if we do target it, is it going to confer sterilizing immunity? Meaning that if you have antibodies to that area, will you prevent infection? And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and I think uh, you know, hopefully this last season is a you know, wake-up call in terms of uh, what we need moving forward to get a really game-changing influenza vaccine. Well, when you leave here, we want you to get to work on that because it, it would be better. To, it would be good to have a better vaccine. And so the vaccine we have now is good at preventing death. Uh, and you know, there's studies that would say that if you got vaccinated and you got influenza, 
you are likely to have sort of better outcomes, less likely to have complications. So I want people to continue to get the vaccine that currently exists. But from a broader sense, we really need, as a society, we need to work on better influenza vaccines. So talk to us about the different routes of administration. As I recall, this year they were recommending that you not get the nasal uh, vaccine. And then uh, what about individuals over the age of 65? Are me, there special vaccines for those? So let me people? start with the actually over 65 one because it's a little bit easier. Uh, so there's some newer vaccines, high dose vaccine and adjuvanted vaccine that uh, seem to uh, allow those who are older, older age, as a 65 or older to have a better immune response and better uh, protection against influenza. So those are recommended for Older people. So high dose or adjuvanted? Yes. Okay. So uh, the nasal, so that's a live attenuated influenza vaccine. For a long time, that's what was uh, thought to be better actually for children. And basically, you're putting it in the nose where people get like influenza, where it comes in. So that's where you want through the antibody response to be. And uh, initial data would, su- would have suggested that it was actually better, especially in children, mm-hmm. uh, until about 2009 when the new H1N1 replaced the old H1N1 because of the pandemic. And then we started to see lower efficacy of the live attenuated vaccine and to the point where we actually didn't see efficacy. And so uh, it was actually taken off uh, the recommended list and therefore manufacturers really stopped making it with the idea that you know, they've reformulated now, has been reevaluated and looks like it's likely uh, good to go for, for next season. We have 60 seconds to go to discuss norovirus. Yeah, what's the deal? I mean, you know, I'm not sure I want to go on a cruise because every once in a while you see an outbreak of norovirus on the ship and everybody gets sick. Yeah, Uh, norovirus is what I think most people would call stomach flu, uh, which is not influenza at all, but usually gastrointestinal illness. Thankfully, it's usually self-limiting. You know, you get diarrhea, vomiting for a day, maybe two, and then it'll go away. Uh, But it's, you know, it's contagious and, you know, it's called fecal oral transmission. Uh, so people will say shaking hands, not washing their hands. Uh, cruise ships are especially prone or uh, because... Uh, floating audience. Floating yeah. Petri dish. Floating <laughs> Petri dish. Uh, so one thing you can do before going on your cruise is actually go to the CDC website where they actually have all the lists of different cruise ships and, and whether or not they've had outbreaks. All right. Updated adult vaccination recommendations, a little bit about a review of the flu season and norovirus with infectious disease specialist Dr. Patish Dash. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear about new advances in emergency medicine practice. And later on the program, we'll learn about the Food Keeper app, a consumer tool provided by the USDA. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Does your child toss and turn at night and have trouble sleeping? It might be restless leg syndrome. Dr. Sherish Kodigal, a Mayo Clinic pediatric neurologist and sleep specialist, says some young patients describe it as feeling like bugs are crawling on their legs while lying in bed, and moving their legs is the only relief. The end result is a lack of good quality sleep, which can have negative side effects at home or in school. He says sometimes kids will say that they have to kick or move their legs. Well, that's restless leg syndrome, a genetic disorder that Dr. Kodigal says is more common in children than you might think. Studies show that one in 50 kids have the condition, a discomfort that can prevent a child from falling asleep and repeatedly wake a child during sleep. It can make them sleepy during the day. 
They're tired in the daytime and frequently have trouble with this tension span. It can often be related to low levels of iron, which helps make dopamine. Dr. Kodigal says children with restless leg syndrome may go undiagnosed because there's a lack of awareness of the condition, and it can be attributed to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder instead. He says the first step is to talk about sleep disorders with your primary care provider or pediatrician. And in other news, let's talk about ingrown toenails. They're a common condition in which the corner or side of a toenail grows into the soft flesh. The result is pain, redness, swelling, and sometimes an infection. Ingrown toenails usually affect your big toe. Often, you can take care of the ingrown toenails on your own. If the pain is severe or spreading, your doctor can take steps to relieve your discomfort and help you avoid complications of ingrown toenails. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to seeing a variety of patients, nowhere in medicine is the patient population more diverse than in the emergency department. Emergency medicine physicians treat everyone, from babies to the elderly, from trauma patients to those who are worried about a cough or a sore throat or a fever. In the ever-changing world of medicine, emergency departments are looking for ways to improve their practices and treat patients efficiently and effectively. One improvement Mayo Clinic is making is launching an emergency department telemedicine program. Here to discuss is the Director of Community Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Russi. Welcome to the program, Dr. Russi. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Russi, good to have you. Uh, I'm going to ask you first the question that everybody out there wants to ask, and that is, why do I have to wait so long in the emergency room? (laughs) Sometimes. Not always. Sometimes. Are you bleeding out of your eyes? Uh, Well, then I'd get it. Yeah, you would. That's right. That is a very difficult question to answer, and we know. know that... We share that pain. We want to be efficient. We want to meet people's needs expeditiously. But the emergency medicine, uh, our volumes go up every single year. And um, people are sicker in this country. Uh, they have um, more issues. More uh, complex problems. More yeah. complex problems, a lack of uh, primary care in some cases. And so that all leads to emergency medicine volumes climbing. Are you seeing a lot of things that actually should be seen in an urgent care center? Don't you deal with a lot of relatively mundane things that aren't true emergencies? And how do we solve that problem? I wouldn't say that in the most part. I mean, there are times, yes, of course, when when we see them things that maybe don't need the emergency department. However, um, patients are worried. Patients have fears. Patients have concerns. And that's why we're there. We're there to waylay those concerns, make sure there's nothing serious or urgent at that time. And, and we're happy to do that. Um, I think the myth exists that we're seeing nothing but urgent care stuff, and, and that's just that's functionally not true, especially here in our campus in Rochester. We have high acuity patients and high volume of them. And I think part of the problem is that there's a lot of people in the waiting room, They uh, and all of a sudden you get a, a four-car accident with a bunch of trauma victims or you get somebody with a, with a heart attack or three people with a heart attack, and obviously you have to go take care of those people first. And that mm-hmm. means that the people in the waiting room have to wait who are don't have quite as serious an injury or not quite as acute. That's right. That's absolutely right. Tough problem. It is. And communicating with those patients that, look, I'm really sorry for the delays. We've had some serious things happen. And the communication process and updating those patients is critically important, which we try our best to do. Is there a typical day in the emergency department? No. Is no. that it's, – it's, it's, is it exciting to work there? 
some days and some days not so much? Well, it's, it's interesting you ask that question. Emergency medicine is the number one burnout specialty in the house of medicine. Really? Consistently. There's a myriad of reasons for that, uh, but we, uh, our specialty is the top burnout specialty. I thought that because you had limited hours, specific hours, and when you went home, somebody else took over, that it would probably be less stressful. That's one of the beauties of our job is when yeah. I go home, I'm not on call. Right. Um, it's, it's shift-based, but it's also very difficult to do shift-based work. We handle a serious volume of patients in a short window. The regulatory environment around the um, medical record and what we have to document is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. profound. The paperwork is a killer. To do that volume in that amount of time with that paperwork. And shift work is hard on your physiology. To do nights, to do evenings, it's hard to be 24-7, 365, and on Christmas, on New Year's, on your birthday. So there is a downside to it. Is mm -hmm. it fun? Absolutely. I mean, I've been doing it now, gosh, 18 years since I started residency. But there are days. There, there are very difficult days. In those 18 years for you or for the other folks that you work with, how has the opioid crisis affected what you do each day? This, this is a sad national tragedy. And so it's affecting us on multiple fronts. Namely, there's um, a large body of research that's coming out on how we can provide alternative ways to, to help with pain in the emergency department. We're trying to adhere to those or look at those very closely. Partnering with our friends in family medicine, in internal medicine, our friends in anesthesia that run the pain clinic, um, adhering to their guidelines, and minimizing the amount of opiates that we actually give to patients on an outpatient basis. So where are all these pills coming from? I, I don't quite understand it. Is it, is it truly because we have over-prescribed narcotics, or are some of these pills coming in from foreign places, overseas, being brought into the country? I haven't heard that. Um, there's some excellent documentaries out there, and I'm not sure I'm in a position to say <laughs> where they're coming from. I, I don't know. But we, as the safety net and the hub of healthcare in the emergency department, have a unique opportunity to help shape the conversation and to help uh, our patients minimize the use and through a collaborative effort with our friends on the outpatient side to just make sure we're doing the right thing. As you have learned better, you have done better when it comes to opioids? I, I think so. Yeah. We have some talented people in our department. I'll mention one, Dr. Casey Clements, is working very mm -hmm. hard on this, um, and we're very thankful for his work. And so we're seeing in our own practice an evolution. I think it's going to evolve more, and you're seeing it on a national level. So you are the director of community internal or community emergency medicine. So how many emergency rooms do you oversee? How many emergency rooms does, does Mayo run in the upper Midwest? Sure. Um, so I serve as the division chair for our department. Um, and we have, well, 21 total departments. Wow. Uh, one of those is our academic hub here in Rochester. The remaining 20 um, are a variety of trauma centers and critical access hospitals. Ten of those 20 are critical access, hold a federal designation of critical access. Hospital. And what does that mean, critical access? There's a, there's a lengthy definition on CMS, but it means essentially you're in a rural environment, um, you're at a significant distance away from another site. Um, yeah. And you can take care of serious injuries. You have to. They have yeah. to have an emergency department 24-7, 365, uh, be a remote distance away from another site, and serve a rural populace, essentially. What changes is Mayo Clinic making to their emergency department? So the biggest one that we've made in our Midwest practice is the evolution of our nurse practitioner and physician assistant workforce, the NPPA 
workforce. Um, they uh, are primarily staffing those critical access sites now. We have low volume, but sometimes they have high acuity. What does that mean? So they don't see a lot of patients on an annual on an annual schedule, but the patients that do come are fairly sick, just like they are everywhere. Nurse practitioners and physician assistants, interestingly in their training, get little to no exposure to emergency medicine. And as the number one burnout specialty, you take someone who isn't even exposed to what we do, plump them into our environment, it's ripe for burnout. And so because of that, we've developed a fellowship training program for those individuals, and as we wanted to talk about our telemedicine program to support them as well. Well, that's right. Let's talk about telemedicine. Tell us about that program. This is really exciting. Um, we've been working on this for several years. In healthcare, as you are probably well aware, there's a big shift into the digital world. I think we're a few years away from uh, you actually interacting with your provider through a digital medium, either asynchronous or asynchronous means. Um, we want to support, the impetus for our program was to support our nurse practitioner and physician assistant workforce. So when they're out in St. James or Wasika or Osseo, Wisconsin, and they have someone really sick and they need some advice, they need some guidance, we're there. The Center for Connected Care has um, uh, contracted with a company. We have a technology system in place, and we can just talk uh, through a video system, which it's really nice. Moving forward, we'd like to see this potentially expand to our regional partners, or our regional uh, competitors, if you will. A lot of non-Mayo facilities send patients into Rochester and to our regional hubs. I think we can support them as well, and then further expanding uh, potentially to the Mayo Clinic Care Network. Ah, and maybe they wouldn't have to come. You could take care of it uh, video, through, via video. That's, you know, ideally keeping patients local is wonderful. It's good for the patient. It's good for the family. Um, Yes. All right. We've been talking about advances in emergency medicine and tele-emergency medicine with the Director of Community Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Russi. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Russi. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from the USDA about a helpful consumer tool, the Food Keeper app. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2015, the United States Department of Agriculture developed the Food Keeper app. Do you have it? I don't, but, but I might will. before <laughs> we're done here. It's a smartphone tool to help reduce food waste and improve public health by sharing safe storage methods, ways that can extend the shelf life of the foods and beverages in American homes. Now, the app lists specific storage timelines for the fridge, the freezer, and the pantry for more than 500 different products. Sounds like something you ought to have. Absolutely. Last summer, the USDA announced new updates to the Food Keeper app. It now provides users with information on food safety recalls. Very valuable. Joining us on the phone is one of the people who helped to develop the Food Keeper app, Christopher Bernstein. Mr. Bernstein is the Director for Food Safety Education at the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Services in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, Chris. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Chris, great to have you with us. Uh, so the Food Keeper app sounds like something maybe all of us ought to have. But there must be a reason why you developed it. Yeah, so the application itself is a digital version of a publication the USDA worked on with Cornell University and an organization called the Food Marketing Institute for quite some time. That publication is called the Food Keeper Brochure, and it dates all the way back to the 1990s. Around the mid part of this decade, we started working on the application because 
interest in the physical pamphlet had declined, and we thought that on smartphones and tablets, we could incorporate a bunch of additional information that folks might want to see when they ask questions about storage, safe food handling, all of that sort of thing. And that's what we did. I always think, well, if I have to ask, should I throw this out? The answer is probably yes. <laughs> But uh, I, I, you have rules that are a little bit more specific than that. Well, so we do say when in doubt, throw it out. Um, we get those. Um, we say that very often with power outages and other sorts of things. But there are some items in your pantry, in your fridge, or in your freezer that you might look at and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about this. And if you consult the Food Keeper app, you might be pleasantly surprised that a lot of those items are likely um, still okay. So it gives you guidance about what, what you can keep for a certain period of time and what you ought to throw away. Exactly. So the app itself has nearly 600 unique products in there, anything from rice to ground beef to fish to coffee to sugar. And it has storage guidance based on what is optimal for those products. So obviously sugar you can leave in your pantry, but ground beef you would want to put in your fridge or your freezer. So we offer storage guidelines based on the optimal storage for each of those items. Um, For the refrigerator, your ground beef might be good for a day or two, whereas in the freezer, um, it's actually good indefinitely. The quality may deteriorate, but the ground beef itself would be safe. It seems like a slam dunk to add the food recall information to this app because that's one of the things that, you know, when you hear that in the news, you have to go back because you're driving or whatever and you can't pay attention to exactly what that was. So that must, is it updated right away and then it, it just follows the story or how does that work? It is. So the recall information that's now incorporated into the application comes from USDA and FDA. So that's all of the food safety recalls that mm. come out of the federal government. You can select either to get those recalls right away um, instantaneously or you can select to get those on a daily or weekly digest. Um, and those just pop up in the notification section of your uh, cell phone, tablet, any, any uh, smart device that you have it installed with. You know, uh, some of the things that I think might uh, surprise consumers is about where you ought to keep things. For example, you shouldn't keep bread in the refrigerator. You should keep it in the pantry. Exactly. Uh, lots of items I was surprised first when we started working on the application where I saw similar things. Potatoes are really best in the pantry. So are tomatoes, which I, before I started working on the application, I just put tomatoes in the, pan in the refrigerator. No. And that actually takes away some of the taste from them. Oh, so now yeah. I correctly store them on my, on my counter. And the only thing better than a room temperature tomato is a garden temperature tomato, and that's the best. Right off the vine, right? Yeah, who's Karen, and what is she all about? So Ask Karen is USDA's virtual representative. It is a question-and-answer system of about uh, 1,500 of our frequently asked questions that we've uh, compiled over the 30-plus years that our meat and poultry hotline has been asking consumer questions about food safety. So folks can search our frequently asked question database within the application if they have general questions. How long should I cook a uh, hamburger to? Is it safe to store my Thanksgiving turkey in the freezer? How long is that safe? And then there's also a live Q&A system within the Ask Karen component of the Food Keeper app. If somebody has questions, they can talk to a live food safety expert here at USDA 
between 10 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, now that's pretty neat. I love it. Is yeah. this app free? It is. The app is free. It's available on the Google Play and on the iTunes Store. As you mentioned, we recently updated it, so lots of really, really helpful information in there. Hey, I see that uh, you can also get cooking tips um, on this app as well. Yeah, so for some of the products, produce, grains, those sorts of things, you don't have to do very much to prepare them to serve them. But for other products like meat, poultry, fish, eggs, you really do want to make sure you cook those properly, otherwise you may get sick. Aside from uh, the tomato mistake that you were making, putting tomatoes in the fridge, what else did you learn when you were getting this app pulled together? Well, so what's great, I actually have a a young child at home. My son um, is turning two in just a couple months. Oh, boy. Um, And as you can imagine, (laughs) two-year-olds like to eat often um, and like to eat very diverse things. So um, he really likes to eat grapes right now. And what's great is that I always stored my grapes in the refrigerator, and I thought on long car trips, oh, well, you know, those grapes have been out too long. He might get sick. We have to toss them and give him something else. Um, Grapes are actually good for about a day outside of the refrigerator. So it's great if we're driving up to my family. They they live about a six-hour drive when we're not taking stops. (laughs) They live about a 10-hour drive when you have a a one-and-a-half-year-old in the car. Um, So it's great because for that whole drive, He can just be popping grapes when he's hungry and stuff like that, getting a healthy snack, and he's going to stay safe. Yeah, that's better than M&M's. That's Uh, what we used to pop. Very true. (laughs) Do you know how many people have downloaded the app? Has it been pretty well accepted? It's popular? Yeah, so it's actually gotten a huge response from uh, the public. Nice. Folks can also, if there's something that is not in the app, like say they want almond milk which is something that we didn't originally have in the app. There's a function where somebody can suggest that we add an an Uh item, and then we'll do it in a future release. You go to the app store and you put in Food Keeper? Correct. You can go to either of the app stores and put in Food Keeper. You can also visit fsis.usda.gov slash apps, and that um, has a link to the application as well. Oh, perfect. Chris Bernstein, we've been talking about USDA's Food Keeper app with the Director for Food Safety Education at the USDA. Thanks so much for being with us, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.